Welcome to the podcast. I'm Al Adamson, and in this episode, I had the great pleasure of speaking with Mercedes Martin. Mercedes has an extraordinary story as she came over from Cuba as a child. Through the course of her experiences, she decided to focus on organizational development and leadership and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Her perspective and ideas are unique and they're uniquely valuable to not only women and women of color, but to those who influence and create the system by which everyone exists. And so without further ado, here's the discussion with Mercedes Martin and me. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with Mercedes Martin. She is a DEI expert. Mercedes, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How are you, Al? I'm doing real well. I'm very excited to be talking with you today. I mean, not only you are you a DEI expert, you're an expert in leadership and understanding organizational culture, inclusion specifically. If you would, please introduce yourself and what we're going to be talking about a little bit today. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, first, great to be here and um, great to be trying out these new questions that I'm asking myself, clients are asking. And yes, in the field of uh, leadership development, but lately, and especially where we find ourselves today is leadership transformation. Uh, so I want to share with you uh, some of the new work that we're exploring, uh, coming through the questions that some of the clients are asking, some of the work that we're doing, and it's all focused on what are some of those key practices uh, when we talk, to, talk today and say that leaders need to transform, what are some of those key practices and shifts that we're finding are critical and necessary to support them on. Uh, so looking forward to jump into this uh, conversation. Well, you know, likewise, because you know, there's many uh, thought leaders and leaders themselves who are contending that leadership development has to be reinvented, uh, particularly with the pandemic, uh, the continuous disruption, uh, remote work. You know, we can't just press reset on the way we've thought about leadership uh, historically. So, yes, I look forward to getting into the details of your thinking and what you advocate be these new approaches. Uh, before we do that, however, I you know, I want to understand, you know, where your inspirations come from and, and what has inspired you to get into this field. Now, you're in Florida right now, is that correct? I am. I am. Well, right now, I'm in Miami, and I go between Miami and uh, West Palm Beach. I'm originally from here, so why don't I just jump in and share my story? Um, Please. Really what was started and what motivated um, little Mercedes to, <laughs> to get to where we're, we're at. Uh, and I like to uh, start by uh, going back to, I was born in Cuba and came to the United States in the early 60s. So that first wave of Cuban refugees that uh, left soon after the revolution. And I start there because that experience of leaving a home country, I was uh, seven, eight at the time and growing up in a completely different culture uh, language, culture, ways of being, and being young, you take a lot of responsibilities, that refugee experience for the family and some of the translation and so forth. So it was a very defining moment um, in my life. Uh, so the refugee experience is, is one, grew up in Miami, um, where I call, I 
you know, sometimes uh, inappropriately called the Cuban Mecca, where every Cuban <laughs> needs to take up a step or go back. Uh, and those were very interesting and formative uh, years because, again, being new to the country and refugees, and especially at a time in the early 60s, uh, when the civil rights movement was at its peak, uh, here in the United States, uh, and we come in and we identify as Black Cubans, uh, but don't speak the language. So that was very confusing for me and my own identity to see other people that had the same skin color aside, but a completely different lived experiences, and we couldn't even understand each other. Um, and I think that those experiences, those early experiences, really shape my quest uh, that is so much part of my work today to really get to the core of what are people's needs, uh, whether it's in leadership, whether it's part of the workload. But most important, are they being seen, heard, and connected? And these days I talk about those needs and that seeing, heard, and connected, and the connected is all the way to the point, are, are people feeling that they love their work? They feel connected to the point of feeling love at work. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of it, I think, comes from that identity experiences um, growing up, which I call living on a hyphen. I'm Cuban-American, I'm Black and Cuban, I'm a woman. Uh, what are all those hyphenated experiences that we have? So definitely a foundation to my work. And we are hyphenated people in many respects. We're not solely one thing. We're not solely an engineer. We're not solely a Mexican-American, Cuban-American. We you know, have a lot of dimensions to us as human beings. And one of the things that I'm really interested to explore with you that in our first discussion we talked about is how are leaders going to acknowledge this multifaceted aspect of who human beings are while still, you know, honoring their humanity, but still, I shouldn't say, but, and still getting work done because, you know, you can go out and doing it at scale. So it's one thing to, you know, walk around and, you know, have a networking event and spend time getting to know people and, you know, at length and at depth. Uh, it's another thing to, hey, we got to get some work done and, and let's go, go do it. So, you know, to just, I want to get into your educational background and, and that frame of reference and how it's influenced you. But before we do that, I just want your take on that dimension of leadership. You know, the idea that we have to balance understanding other people with getting work done. Can you just share your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I think that that's a great point and that's the major shift, right? Um, and I think that the shift is that we can't continue separating what before we were calling um, soft skills, um, the people stuff was separated from getting the work done. And I think that when I talk about these practices and the major shifts is to understand that taking time to reflect before you start your day, uh, do the mirror work, like we say, putting that mirror and saying, okay, I'm going into this meeting. It's about X, Y, and C. What is it? Um, you know, what's the heart of the matter in this conversation? Uh, how does it impact what I'm deciding or even thinking about 
is being informed by those lived experiences or even those hyphens. I think that we separate the human experience work from business. And the shift that we're saying, and we're talking about the future, is that that that's that is the work <laughs> that the yeah. human is the work, and especially the higher you will go up in that organization. Uh, and, and let me just say this: I, I get it, um, you know, and and especially with the type of clients. Sometimes it's like, uh, yeah, but I need to I need to get the business done. Uh, there's a way that you can do both, and that's why they call practices uh, in a quick way that doesn't take one from the other. So, love oh yeah, yeah, I, I, I definitely want to come back to that because you know the idea that we're just going to turn on a switch and all of a sudden be great at it, and everyone's going to feel included and belong and all those good stuff is not the right mindset, arguably. And, you know, we do have to practice, we do have to elevate our self-awareness and how to do that is, you know, something I certainly want to explore with you as we go in the conversation. But before we go there, uh, what did you study given your experience as a young person coming over from Cuba, when you got into high school, college, you know, what was some of your inspirations and what did you end up studying to learn more about the human experience, particularly here in America? It's the first uh, shift in my life where um, looking back now, I realized that each shift and uh, landmark in my life came because a good question, provocative question was asked. Um, Either I was asked, I asked myself or someone and For me, the education and the direction that I went um, came about being raised in a very traditional uh, Catholic, Hispanic, Latino, uh, Cuban household where gender roles were very, very well defined. And my dad was going to make sure of that. So (laughs) I went to uh, private all-girls high school, um, Catholic high schools all my life. So you see the gender kind of, um, it was an era where, especially as Cuban refugees in Miami in that now mid sixties, late sixties, wanted to protect the culture. So by the time I arrived at the University of Miami and I want to study, I applied for uh, pre-med, that's my undergrad. And then after pre-med comes, what university I'm going to go to, I'm going to need to leave Miami. And my dad sat me down and made it very clear that uh, no daughter of his was going to leave home. uh, Or the only way I would be able to leave home was going to be three conditions. One, I was going to uh, get married and I would leave with my husband. I that was in my interest at the time. Uh, second, that I would join the nunhood. You've met me for a little bit now, and you know that that probably wasn't going to be one of the options. And then the last one was that I would take care of or move in to take care of an elderly family member. And I realized, you know, at that point that I needed to uh, figure out how to navigate the cultural. Uh, various mindsets, right, that I was dealing in the home. And today I think about it this way. Back then it was in a very different, in a very different way. Uh, And what I decided was to join the military. So I switched from pre-med. At the time, the University of Miami had a 
transcultural nursing program. And what I realized today is that being transcultural, it gave me that it really tapped into that interest of learning about different cultures, the why that I was always looking for. Uh, but I still need to figure out how to leave home and for the family to save face. So I joined the, the military. I did things, I say I did things backwards. I didn't do ROTC or anything <laughs> that, that. The day of my graduation from the University of Miami with a BSN in uh, transcultural nursing, I came in active duty in the U.S. Air Force where I served for uh, 12 years and left as a, as a captain. So I, that really wow. shaped the trajectory of my life. Um, and then the other major change from that question, which for me was, why can't I do this? Why do I see my American-born uh, U.S. colleagues living a women living a completely different lifestyle, making different choices than I can make. What is that about? Um, after yeah. joining the service, my first duty station was in California where I've been for 30 something years. So you get to see the, this, I, sometimes I call it, um, I live multiple realities. I'm moving from Berkeley, Oakland to Miami and all of that with that, in, with that start of, of studying cultures and asking the question, that curiosity of the why is what shaped my um, education. I went back, I should say, to the University of San Francisco. So now completely different coast. I've been by coastal all my life. Uh, and that's where I uh, studied the organizational development and leadership. Um, at a yeah. time in the early nineties where, and asking that question, everyone directed me to just the beginning of diversity management in the corporate sector. Uh, Roosevelt Thomas in Atlanta uh, was just starting with his book, um, Race, uh, Race and Gender and the Importance. And someone gives it to me to read for a paper. And I said, oh, people are consulting on this? This is my life. How do you leave these, uh, through these um, hyphens and experiences? And that's where I built the work uh, today, a lot of what I do right. from that. Yeah. Wow, it's a fascinating journey. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to jump into your military experience because as a woman at that time, and it's obviously a highly structured environment, how did you navigate that? And how did you take that experience from you know, the military and apply it to business and potentially governmental organization, your, your clients, um, which might not have that same level of rigor structurally um, that the military does. What was that transition like? The um, structure in the military, I say it saved my life because my archetype is that visionary big picture. What's next? Um, asking the curious questions and the military gave me the systemic thinking, connecting the dots, which is so much of what I carry in the work today, and especially when I talk about sustainability. How do you look at the whole ecosystem? Um, so the structure, um, the way to, I fought it, 
let's be really honest. I fought it. I was one of those outliers, right? Fighting the, uh, the structure, but it's also part of the biggest learnings that I have uh, today and that I bring to the client, the, the process and, and the strategic thinking approach to what's, what's happening. And gosh, I, I, <laughs> there's so much that I want to ask about that. And I'm hesitant because uh, I want, because I'm bringing in my own biases right now uh, about military and oh, what it might yes. be like yes. for you in, in, in the military. And so, you know, I'm trying to check myself in real time Go here, for it. but, but the, you know, the, the essence of uh, the question is this, is that of those, my father, former Marine, and I went to officer's camp school for the Marine Corps. And, uh, you know, so I have some experience uh, with you know, the structure and the idea that your scope of influence is is rather small, depending, you know, obviously depending on rank. But the idea that yeah, you see all the dots connected, but to influence the approach to getting a certain objective accomplished requires a lot of influence and collaboration and, uh, for lack of a better term, politicking. Again, that's my bias. And I just want to, I, I can just imagine you, again, as a woman, at a leader, at a captain level, trying to get things done and how probably challenging that was for you. And but how great of a learning it was to build a coalition to you know get things done, particularly of diverse people. Um, is that an accurate portrayal of you know what your experience you know was? And you know, would you like to elaborate on that a bit? Absolutely. And um, the joke in the house is that knowing my style and way of being uh, first. It's a surprise for people that I have a military experience. And second, when I talk about, yes, the, what, was, what I learned from it, what was beneficial was the structure, was also the hardship of figuring out how to navigate a culture, a mindset that was so different from my own, both culturally and, and, and young personal. Um, that on top of it at a time when, you know, I, I was, I was still active duty when the tail hook, and now I'm going to date myself <laughs> incident, uh, happened where it really caused a pause in the military. It was Navy, then it trickled to all the branches on sexual harassment uh, that was occurring for uh, women in the military. And then on top of that, for me and living in all of the hyphens, the intersection of, yes, I'm a woman and also at that a black woman and also at that a Latina woman. And I don't name those to play a marginalized or oppression Olympics, but also to highlight the complexity of what I was going through at, um, at the time. Uh, examples, some very subtle, others uh, very poignant. Um, one one experience was um, my colleague, my NCO, and I being received the award for 
the outstanding step back then it was staff development, talent development in our unit. And when the day of the award came, it's a big deal. It was recognized at a national um, across the services. Uh, my commanding officer lets me know that I'm not to, my unit is not recognizing that award because they wanted to give more opportunities to the other women to show up on stage. So that experience of understanding that there's systems and processes, but people can then interpret it, those systems and processes based on their own lenses and experiences is what later on I realized and is the, you know, it's the foundation of the work. Um, I have to tell you that when that happened, people around me were like, what just happened? Did you, how could that be? And I was one of those who at the time felt that very culture again, if I did a great job, put my head down and delivered that that leader would recognize me, that that leader would see, hear, and connect with me. And that was the beginning of the experience that that wasn't necessarily so. We had policies and procedures for everything, and there was a subset of policy and procedures that were adapted or applied differently depending where you fell in the organization and how you looked in the organization. And that's true in the military as it is true in private corporate, which is the majority of my of my work experience. Is that what you what you were referring to as that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you gave me, uh, uh, by the way, it's not about my expectation. I'm just really, um, yeah, curious. And that, you know, frankly, not surprising in a very sad, you know, way. Um, it's also the case where I get really hopeful and excited to see things change, um, however incrementally. And, yeah, I know just in getting to know you that you have inspired such work, you have inspired such leaders to take different approaches and recognize people uh, when they make key contributions and even when they're struggling. And, you know, I want to get to that notion of practicing and flexing that empathy muscle and, and you know, seeing, hearing and connecting people as you're, as you're talking about. Uh, I do, though, want to take that military experience um, and transition to your you know, professional life. So uh, what happened after the Air Force? Well, I another pivotal moment. And, and before I, I get to this question, I just wanted to, uh, to go back to that military um, experience uh, earlier. Please. And I want to say, Al, that you're right. Um, A lot of what those experiences taught me was to balance the candor with the compassion. So what it did is really clarify. I I realized we need to know, I needed to know very clearly who is Mercedes and you know, what do I stand for? Uh, now we call it clarity on the purpose and the why. And I think that for many of us, until that that's clear, um, that's where we end up 
with careers by default, not careers that we've really had design or conversations or, or experiences. So I feel like there's a lot to, um, you know, that inner self um, development. So for me, um, I went too far from the question. So now I wanted to get back. No, no, no. no. It's just your transition. Your transition from uh, military to you know, doing you know, to your professional um, life in you know corporate America and elsewhere. Does it, you know what did that look like? And you mentioned going to you know, USF. Was that when you were still with the Air Force, or was I was that still when with you the Air just... Force? And it came right after I I was one of those who left the military and went. Um, I was a full-time reservist right before um, Desert Storm, the first Desert Storm. And I found the one night we got recall. So I had already moved back here. I was going to restart my career military um, back in Miami. And I got recall and then back to California. It was a big pivotal moment in my life because my son was three months and my daughter was three years old. And uh, my husband at the time, who's now passed away, was also career military, also nurse. So both of us are active duty now and preparing to deploy. Um, the, my son and my daughter, we live with my parents in Miami. And I saw the decisions that women needed to make. My, I, I also realized, and even you know, now as I'm sharing these stories with you, that so much of my anchor and questions has also been defining what does it mean to be a woman, uh, not only military, but in the professional. And I saw the struggle, just like we saw with COVID, that you know, women like myself leaving the kids and, and there were choices that we made, I understand, but how do you deal with it? Um, so I wanted to explore what was that, you know, what was that like? Uh, but there was one defining moment. Uh, we were, I was on a night shift. Uh, Desert storm is in the middle of January. We're waiting to see what's going to happen, all kinds of stories. I don't like what's happening right now with the unfortunate and part of the Ukraine. And what I saw was that we would start a shift. And when I work with the majority of all men, the way in the military you decide who um, is going to take the lead in that shift, who's going to be the, the head nurse uh, by rank. We were doing it in that time like that. And I noticed that when I work with men, uh, it was five seconds. Someone would say, okay, let's rock and roll or who's going to get us out of here as soon as possible. You're going to rock it and roll it. Okay, Mercedes, you got it. And that was when it was predominantly men. But when I realized when I was working with all women, it would take us sometimes five, 10 minutes to decide who was going to leave for the evening. And it went something like this. When did you pin captain in May? Oh no, I pinned it in October. So, so there was this hesitation or discussion about status. And, and I was like, what is that about? So those two brought me to go back to school. And um, my study was under healthcare in nursing management and how gender 
impacted your your leadership style. So I'm studying, I'm doing all that. I'm I'm loving it. You picked up by now my rhythm. That is, I get a question, I you know find out what people are thinking about it, right? How are they responding? And then I go back to school or get the education and and uh, and get the rebus. So I am having a great time, and I get a call out. And remember, I'm on military pay, um, benefits in the whole bid. And I get a call from IBM at the time. And I don't know if Ted Childs, he was one of the first uh, chief diversity officers at IBM, calls. And they were putting together a women's leadership program, and they couldn't understand. Uh, they had invited, uh, it was global. And they invited Brazilians and they were called women of color. And there was a whole eruption because they were like, we're not women of color. We're not a minority in our country. What is this? This is American terminology that is being applied to us. And I started getting calls like that, still on, in the military, asking, would I facilitate a workshop on what it meant to you know, culture, especially what it meant to be Black and Latina, what it meant to be um, a woman identifying as Latina, the refugee, all these hyphens, because there was this realization that, right, that was impacting leadership. There was a, that's when the DNI uh, work is starting to formalize. So that's, that's my shift from military. I came home and I said to my family, oh my gosh, I just got a consulting job and don't laugh at this a hundred dollars an hour. We're going to be so rich. <laughs> so I transitioned. <laughs> I left the military and um, became a consultant at the time. And since the eighties, I come in and out organizations, depending on their need, an interesting project and out to full consulting which is what I'm doing now with um, Mercedes Martin and, and, and company. And I'll say this time I came out after almost uh, 10 years with one of the big, big fours that have had a big impact in you know, my career and the way that I do my work. Uh, and it was also because of a question. So that brings us to today. And, and that question were two questions. I was doing a lot of work in Latin America and bringing the programs, the executive coaching, the leadership development team acceleration that we were developing here in the U.S. to Latin America, and specifically four countries, Brazil, um, Argentina, Chile, and Colombia. And again, my anthropology hat went on because what I noticed was that I had to change so much about the context, about the approach, about what the practices needed to be, from what I was bringing to the U.S., from the U.S. into uh, this country. And one um, client, internal client, says to me in Brazil, because I'm expecting this to be deep personal work. You're talking about mindset shift. And I just got the request and is saying that this is a day-long program. Here in Brazil, last time I brought this to my team, 
just the assessment was three days of, you know, three hours of asking questions and whatnot. And the process was three days. How can we do this in a day? Help me understand. And I said, I get you. And we designed and redesigned this major shift program, which is, again, the foundation of a lot of what I'm doing today. So the question leads me to to my next <laughs> adventure. Well, that's fascinating. And thank you for sharing. And that's exactly where I'd like to go is understanding the work that has evolved, you know, since you left the military, since you were doing this facilitation and, you know, experience design for leaders and others. Cause there's this idea that I've seen over the past 20 years that diversity, equity, inclusion, organizational culture is a project. It's, uh, and specifically DEI leaders were, often just solo influencers, you know, they might carry a VP title, but they, you know, had limited resources to get things done. Fast forward, they're integral in many organizations to almost everything, call it employee experience or uh, cultural transformation or, or what have you, but there needs arguably to be an ongoing set of practices or resources that can sustain movement in a positive direction. Is that what I'm hearing um, that you're doing now and that where you see the world going is this, uh, you know, explain to me what it looks like if organizations and specifically leaders are going to develop the muscle of more inclusive behaviors and create cultures that you know, allow people to bring their whole selves to work. You know, what does that look like here in 2022 for you? Hey, you, you hit it right, right on the head. Yes, that's, I, where I'm at today, I talk about, you know, we, we need a, a second generation of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, we, we need to go beyond is what I say. And I agree with you. The, the many, of the chief diversity, um, sometimes now I'll call belonging or sustainability officers, uh, either colleagues or or friends that are doing a great job and really bringing in the systemic, you know, outlook to to this work. Uh, and we're in a completely different era. So before I answer your question on where I'm going in 2022, I think I need to go back because I, this type of conversation, at least I feel like we need to give it the right context for us to understand where we're at and where we go. And, and that's the philosophy, right, of, of my work, that if I look at the past, I could change the future. Right. Um, and that's what we call that mirror work for ourselves too. You know, I, I got in this work. I, you know, now I say I'm old. So we, I started this work with the coast cultural right after college. And I finished in the eighties. Um, and I drank the Kool-Aid out. I, back then when I came in and then a lot of the diversity training, the context that we use was, it's 1986, the Hudson Institute just came out with this uh, future report 
that says that by the year 2000, we're going to have 85% of the people coming into the workplace are going to be women and people of color. So diversity and inclusion was about creating, Rosabelle had a video, the house for diversity. You're going to now expand to this number of people. And look, the studies show that if you have more diversity, you are going to do better financially. Um, back then, I don't think we were speaking in the same way about the employee experience or the engagement. We weren't even using inclusion. It was more the diversity, looking at what was different about you. And I was one of those and many colleagues like the, you know, Julio Maras and the Juan Lopez who started the uh, think tanks like Diversity 2000 and now the Global Diversity and Inclusion Benchmarks, that with that data, we would be able to really anchor the conversation and transform the leadership. So by 2000 comes and the percentages, the statistics, just like were projected in 1986, were very close or exceeded. But when I stop and not much has changed in the organization, 20 years later, I'm hearing the same type of stu uh, study uh, issues. I'm changing the name, but the issues remain the same. Uh, groups not feeling, especially marginalized groups, seen, heard, and connected. Um, it comes a time to do things differently. And that's when I say, okay, instead of the system didn't work and I'm going to believe, I can make provocative statements here. I believe that the system is never going to work. That part of the problem is that we need to regenerate, redesign the system, not fix it. And if that's true, I say, well, then instead of just look, starting from the system, let me start from the leadership who shapes the system and how do we change those mindsets? And that's the trajectory and that's what I see uh, today. It's beyond diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's about the both and, about looking at it as Yes, is about the individual and the identity, the race and ethnicity, but it's also how am I moving everyone in the organization um, forward? And it's fascinating because what I find, especially in the CEO executive level when we're doing this work, which by the way, I call them humanity labs, to get, get in touch again with all of this that is our, you know, what makes us human, what we're, we're trying to decide here. What I find is that a lot of times there's a lot of hesitation, especially since 2020, to even use the word, this is for all. There's a, there's a lot of um, concern about the backlash, fear, and anxiety about the backlash that if I say this is for all, am I then not supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion? I'm not supporting Black Lives Matters. Uh, am I going to get in one of those social scandals and dilemmas that uh, so many organizations can end, can end up? And I say that is the both and. Uh, and that's been the hardest shift. When we come, and now I'm going to take you back, military um, models, very 
yes or no, black and white, the dualistic thinking that many of us are um, indoctrinated, whether we're aware of not, and especially from a corporate culture, which is military culture, you end up with leaders right now, and you said it earlier, you have to be compassionate, you have to be able to talk about politics, religion, race, ethnicity. Um, the Elderman Trust Barometer says that 86% of the population trusts you, the leader of organizations, more than government and whatnot. And, oh my gosh, how do I make all of these decisions and not mess up? So there's a lot of that scattered ambiguity that's going on. And the work that we're doing is, that's why Sobre Mesa, let's just put it on the table and figure out what's really going on here, starting with you. And uh and having fun yeah. with God, I love what you're sharing so much, and I imagine our listeners are as well. And it also then invites the question for me is how to create the space to look at the system and acknowledge its weak points, uh, its shortcomings, and have the courage and creativity to actually change it. If I heard you correctly, when you say not fix it, I think about process improvement and putting a bandaid on things and, and just making a modest shift. And what I, when I think of systemic change, I'm thinking about discontinuous innovation and truly doing things differently. So my question again is, yeah how to create the space and have this discussion, this exploration and make some decisions in the midst of, you know, flying the plane to, you know, at a, you know, Mach 2, you know, life's going on, but we still have to, you know, make some shifts. So what does that leadership experience look like to evaluate the system and make appropriate change? Yeah, yeah. And, and I love when you bring it back because that's exactly the concern when I first meet with leaders. When am I going to find the time uh, to do this? And of course, I can give the consulting uh, answer. You know, you there is no way that you cannot not make the time. And mm -hmm. since 2020, I had to stop and ask myself that question too, because you're right. There go, you know, everyone is going a hundred miles an hour and what we're talking about again is so counter um two very concrete answers one is that when i invite them to look at the system it's their own internal system that they need to start looking at first and through mindfulness through understanding your past narrative. So a lot of narrative um, story coaching to understand. And all of this is part of the coaching. So very concretely to, to address that. And I also have to say that um, another way to contextualize this conversation is that we place organizations in four different buckets. So, sorry, Mercedes, I, 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 I'm going to be really inappropriate and interrupt you real quick because I, I, before, we, but before you go into those four, which I know, you know, has its own uh, narrative, I, this mindset 
and self reflection and uh, internal narrative. Before we leave that, uh, I have two questions because many business leaders I found are very uh, cognitively centric. You know, they spend a lot of time in their heads. Uh, they think about outcomes. Um, they, you know, they're doers. A lot of particularly leaders, and I am interested to know from your perspective have many they might have read a book or two you know but are they experienced because to look at your control narrative in, in my view is correct me if i'm wrong is very experiential it's very it, it's tough work it takes some space it takes you know breathing it, it takes uh you know to your point the mirror uh, you know, ex exercise, uh, you know, and doing it repeatedly, not just as a one-off. So the question, how many leaders, maybe on a percentage basis, have actually done that work or are practiced being aware of their internal narrative and the associated biases and opportunities to shift? You know, w w what's the openness there? Let me go there and give you the five. Because I, I see, I was going to, because a lot of how they see themselves or how much they can go to that internal is dependent on where the organization is pulling, where the organization sees itself. So if the organization that they're leading overall, that system is still in, how many women do we have? I can't find any black people to hire right now. And when do we start a diversity council? That's a very different a conversation or a very different environment for the leader to even find themselves pushing themselves to get to that transformational organization, what we're calling that fourth level, uh, that is really looking at how do I integrate all of these pieces? How do I integrate the diversity and inclusion with the sustainability, the ESGs, the UN sustainable goals? and realize that I'm managing the whole ecosystem. That for, that's one. The five practices for the leaders, in, and again, it depends on where that organization is at, uh, is not one or the other. There's five, and what we notice uh, around 2018, my colleague Liz Guthrish and uh, Meloni Thakar and I interview close to 30 something leaders and ask the question, you know, there's this thing called sustainability, big S sustainability, ESGs, UN, and there's standards in there. There are competencies that relate back to fairness and equity and gender pay. Have you thought of connecting those sustainability goals to your DNI? programs and initiatives. And we found, and I'm going to give you that percentage when you say who's looking at mindset and all that. And we found that the majority knew that, yes, that was important to make that connection. I call it connect those dots between sustainability and equity, but they were afraid or didn't feel prepared to address the social sustainability. That's where raise those, right? Um, what, we're, what we saw, and there was no option in 2020 when what I call the four pandemics blew up. Because now you have the environment, you have health, you have race, you have finances, and now you have to address all of those social 
um, issues. So what I what we found was that a lot of times there was a lot of hesitation in making decisions or generally not knowing how to connect those dots and make decisions. Uh, and, and it was driven from a place of fear of, is this going to impact the organization or not? You saw that when uh, last year, when the voting rise in bills uh, started, were created in, in Atlanta, where some organizations were, the seals came out and were against it. Some of it were with it. And then you also dug deeper and saw that some organizations and leaders were on both sides of that equation. So leaders now need to be able to navigate, right? All of that social uh, scandal, all of that social. What we found was that there was a small cohort, and I'm going to say 7%, and is um, similar to when you talk about uh, transformative, the archetype of that transformative leader that we need today. Uh, all the studies talk about there's about 7% there, that Mandela, um, Nelson Mandela type of archetype that is able to see the collective, is able to move everyone, they're inspirational, and that's what we're talking about. 7%. And there were five practices that we noticed that they were engaged in. And the first one is the one I mentioned earlier. It wasn't just that they were doing self-reflection. They're also what Dr. Sean calls, they were doing the, they pivot to mirror work. So they knew that it was the both and how am I doing with this as well as what's going. Because if I didn't look at the mirror and clear that spectrum, it was really going to inform what I saw through that through that lens. The second one that we that I see in these you know cohorts of transformative leaders is that they create these safe and brave places for themselves as well as the organization. So this is where that whole notion of psychological safety or what Dr. Clark calls a place where vulnerability is rewarded. So you're building teams, you're building the capacity even in yourself to be able to share with full candor uh, and transparency how you're feeling, what 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 you're you know what you're what you're experiencing, or the decisions that you're making in order to be able to everyone come. So the safe and brave places for the vulnerability. And the third, there's five of them. The third one is the inclusion piece. And we, you know, we talk about it from very different ways. And this is part of the new work. So I'm, I'm looking for, I keep looking for a better, a bigger word than inclusion, but inclusion captures it. And that is, and you said it from the very beginning, they need to take, uh, they need to do perspective taking. They need to have a full spectrum of lenses to be able to uh, ensure that they have the voice of the organization as well as their own before they make the decision. So did I consider, and this is where I go back to the people analytics and the data analytics, what is my data saying, but do I also know the stories of what these folks are telling me? Infinite mindset is number four that we notice. So it's, they're not, this is, they know this is not a quick fix. They know that this is not a program. They know that this is a, 
and I, you know, my colleague says that the word journey is now overused, but this is a long road and a, and a journey and celebrate those posts. And then the last one is really building the network and the alliances, especially the social networks to give access. It sounds like I'm adding a lot of time. We, I'm, I'm thrilled to, you know, we said we're an evidence-based organization that we do have leadership teams and leaders now that have gone, are in that journey of those five practices and you see and are able to measure the change in their perspective um, and how they lead. So the time concern that you're bringing up is something that becomes the first awareness or shift for them. That is not so much of the time, but how I'm using the time. And I know that I sound uh, without the experience, this could sound very, did she say she was in Berkeley for a while? Because that's what it sounds like right now. <laughs> and there is actually one of, I'm in a <laughs> internal MBA program run by the Sounds True, tell me and the Sounds True Foundation, which is all about realizing that what's going to cause the big support the biggest shift and rewire. And that's why I use those words that are so mechanistic rewiring of leadership today is really understanding the internal work and not relying or thinking that we know what those tools need to be or the tools you need to apply, but really creating them. And that's what we're doing in, in the team setting. Five practices. The last thing I'll say is the setting is important and that's the sobremesa. So we host them in beautiful places like a museum, uh, sometimes over a dinner, uh, a meal. Uh, depending on the organization, they bring their senior, their leadership team, and some organizations are now looking at cascading it across the uh, and out the organization. And they do serve wine for those that are inclined, nice dinner and have these real conversations where those five practices are discussed, measured, and uh, brought through. So it's a different environment for learning and a different way of, um, of introducing it. I, I, I want some of that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> and I live in the yeah. perfect spot for that too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Well, you know, we have probably, you know, five, 10 more minutes and, you know, there's a lot of, places that I can go and we're definitely going to have to talk some more about this topic to. and, as well as Love you your know, questions uh, Al. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's because it, your experience, your ideas, your approaches is, uh, you know, it's fascinating and it's, and it's called for, it's always been called for, but certainly at this day and age, given everything that's happening in the world, it's uh, yours is an important voice and the approaches that you take, I hear sustainability, I hear creativity, I hear courage, both self and organizational. So, uh, you know, I, I certainly celebrate what you're doing. My question, you know, at the individual level, uh, particularly the mirror work, that relates to how in turn you're going to interrelate with other people. So my uh, when you talk about ecosystems connecting DEI to ESG, uh, yeah, it is an ecosystem and there needs arguably uh, different governance across that ecosystem. In other words, we've had silos uh, based on functions. You know, we've had 
competition uh, for, oh, this is my space, you know, you stay over there, I'll stay over here. Um, the approach to data and analytics has oftentimes been disparate. So my question is, okay, you're gonna do a session who's in the room and when we talk about changing the system are you effectively talking about changing the ongoing governance model or you know, sh shifting that as well and as well as the information that they're yes. absorbing yes yes to make yes decisions? yes yes so um yes we i definitely want to continue this conversation so when i talk about the inclusion another way we talk about that is that we need to move from the tribal and silo to this more collective and community, and that's the equal space. Um, tribal, when is when we work with intact teams and what we call this accelerating the team, we see it. They just think that they're the only ones, right? And then the silo is the function. So now you have a group of teams and the functions, and that keeps replicating. Look, at the end of the day, what I'm saying is that unless we, and um, my colleague will, will hate me for saying this, but we got to blow up the way leadership development is being introduced these days. What we're, what we're talking about is a completely different context. And at the same time, we're continuing to develop leaders with the same models that we know didn't work. And if I get really provocative, we're writing about the future and where we need to go. Every journal talks about this future direction. And at the same time, we're consulting to the same models that have always been there. So that's the first place where alignment needs to happen. I'm part of LEAP, which is a group, um, actually UN base, where we're looking at how do we infuse this different mindset in management education and higher education and your NBA programs so that this dichotomy that we've been um, working on, this military model of the separation of people, strategy, business is addressed at that, um, at that level. I think that the next piece is uh, the, these environments that we're creating where it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I need to find out. So really deconstructing what that iconic leadership model, that military officer that has all the answers, that's all the, you know, all of the, the pieces is really looked at now as a more collaborative, transformative leader. And that's what's happening in these, um, in these labs. But what I realize is that it needs to come from the individual. It needs to, you know, there has to be a pull from the leadership and that's where the 7% <laughs> comes in. <Yeah. laughs> well, yeah, again, I want to emphasize, I certainly celebrate your work. And I know Dr. Jeffrey Pfeffer from Stanford also aligns with your contention that leadership needs to be uh, reinvented. And it's also the case where it's been more difficult than we care to admit, because yes, there's been this legacy thinking, legacy models mindset. And some of them, yeah, they're valuable insofar as they have uh, a, uh, they reflect where we have been and can we leverage some of the insights and learn? Absolutely. But it doesn't mean we just go in that same line. What I'm hearing you say is that we have to 
again, be more creative and identify the experiences that we want people to have and then build for that. And particularly given remote work, you know, the new technologies, the fact that we're leaving digital footprints all over the place, which provides a, you know, indication of how we're spending our time, who's communicating with who, and I'll, and we can talk about ethics around that, but that's, you know, a, a reality. So yeah, I, I want to celebrate, you know, you and, and please keep being your awesome self and, and doing what you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. And I can't, um, you know, stop without also mentioning that ditto to everything that you said that we need to look at and was different and we're bringing into the soda mesa is also making it okay to bring some of these indigenous old world practices to support this notion of we need to rewire i need to think through and it doesn't have to be with just looking at the past and what didn't work there's there's more to it so i think also expanding that lens on who's uh, definition of leadership are we looking at to all start from there and make it more inclusive is part of the work and and what I'm excited about uh, and wanting to continue to talk to yeah as we as we start to wrap here I just what you just shared uh, reminded me uh, Sarta Chawla who uh, was one of my teachers talked about shrinking the inner critic and elevating the compassionate witness and just you know observing what has happened and looking at it with a caring you know compassionate lens and you know that's how i see you showing up and you know yes you want to improve things but you also want to hold people in safety and and kindness and and without you know judgment um, so that's as beautiful so um how can people learn more about you and, and what you're doing uh linkedin for right now, we're just uh, launching the Sobre Mesa experience, which will be both a podcast and um, more of a convening Sobre Mesa webinar type uh, function. Mm -hmm. uh, but the LinkedIn right now, and a lot of what I said today, I will post is actually a presentation uh, dialogue that I do on sustainable equity. That's the framework. And it has a lot of the details and the references there. So I'll post that on my uh, LinkedIn profile. All right. Thank you for for this conversation and, and the questions. And Oh, absolutely. It, it's, it, it's absolutely my pleasure. I mean, this is uh, thrilling. I, I'll just say it yet one more time. I, your narrative and your ideas, uh, they need to be heard more broadly. It needs to be more widely adopted. Uh, and of course, there's others who are doing similar work and want to celebrate them. I just, uh, the idea that leaders have, because they got an MBA or because they've been leaders for 20 years, doesn't mean that they're going to be good leaders in 2022 and beyond. The world has shifted systems have shifted underneath them. So there has to be a greater acknowledgement that there needs to be new ways. And that's what I see you bringing to the fore. So yeah, you keep doing what you do. Thank you for seeing me and hearing me and connecting. Thank you. Same here. Same here. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about today's guest, go to pafal.net. You'll be able to see links to the bio as well as to the video of today's program. You'll also have the chance to support this podcast and other shows that we do by becoming a Pafal community member. 
You can also donate if you choose. What will be helpful to support Pafau, the People Data for Good Movement, and me will be to share this episode with friends and coworkers and others who might find it valuable. Uh, finally, for updates on upcoming episodes, shows, and events, please subscribe to our newsletter at pafau.net. At the bottom, you can also see our social media presence. So please subscribe to our company page on LinkedIn. Follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. We're active as can be, and we want to provide this content to you that is timely, relevant, and actionable. So again, thank you for listening today and hope to see you soon. I also want to give a shout out to Jenna Dern, Malaz El-Sheikh, and Sarah Sparnan, who without them, this show would not happen. And now go out and make some great things happen.